0: In Williamsburg, Virginia,
2: there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
2: you're listening to the history extra podcast from bbc history magazine the uk's best-selling history magazine I'm David Musgrove. Welcome to the second of our new four-part podcast mini-series, where we're bringing you a medieval masterclass with the historian Dan Jones. This was first recorded as a virtual lecture programme in the late summer of 2021, when Dan's book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, had just been published. Over the course of four episodes, I asked Dan to take us on a journey through four ages of medieval history, from the collapse of the Western Roman Empire through to the dawning of renaissance ideas and religious revolution. To quickly recap what we covered in the first episode, that was from AD 410 to 750, and we left things with Islam having basically expanded across much of the Middle East, North Africa and Iberia. And the period had been dominated by a lot of population movements, Uh, and the world generally wrestling with the aftershocks of the decline of the Roman Empire. For this episode, we are looking at Dominion, and we're covering the period from 750 up to 1215 AD. To kick things off, Dan launches into an overview of the period, so that's what you're going to hear next, and then he and I dissect some of the key themes in more detail. Now, I should say that if you want to watch a video of our conversation and enjoy the extended audience Q&A that we had in the live masterclass session, you can do that at our website at historyextra.com forward slash video. You do need to be a website subscriber to access that content. Anyway, over to Dan to introduce us to the age of Dominium, 750 to 1215
3: AD. This period of the Middle Ages is in some ways, I think, the, uh, the truly iconic bit. And by that I mean, uh, to put it into really um, factuous terms, I suppose, if you were invited to a medieval-themed fancy dress party and you went down to your local fancy dress outfitters and you said, I need a medieval costume, it's very likely that they'd set you up with one of, of two types. Of medieval costume um and it would either be a knight or some sort of monk slash nun uh then there are other options i accept there are other options but it would probably be one of those two and at the, at the core of the part of the book we're talking about today uh, which is called dominion which covers this period 750 to 1215 lies the rise of these two particular archetypes the uh the professed religious people who had gone and devoted their lives to to the service of God and the service of their community through uh, the praise of God. And knights, mounted warriors, at least they begin as mounted warriors, who have given over their lives to uh, military endeavours, high degree of training, um, but ultimately the pursuit of uh, chasing, fighting, killing other human beings. And the growth or, and the institutionalization of the monk and the knight is really at the core of, of this story we're going to explore today, as is their fusion in the crusader the crusader who comes along at the end of the eleventh century with the first crusade or arguably a little before then and uh, and comes to dominate the image of uh, of the medieval westerner in the eyes of people uh, across the world certainly across the western world and middle east politically let's 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 follow on from where we were last week so last week, we talked about the, what Chris Wickham's called the inheritance of Rome, and we looked at the way that the barbarian kingdoms um, formed by nomadic tribes coming into the, the vacuum left by the collapsing Western Roman Empire had, had reformed, redrawn the map, so to speak, of Western Europe. We thought about Byzantium, New Rome, Rome's centre of gravity shifted definitively to Constantinople and its concerns in the Greek-speaking Eastern Mediterranean world. And we thought about the rise of the uh, the first Islamic caliphates, the Arabs who burst out of Arabia and uh, I, we, as we argued or I argued towards the end of last week 's session formed arguably the uh, the state with the greatest claim to be the heirs of Rome through use of a common language and uh, vast territorial conquests, among other things. The date seven fifty I chose because that marks the, the breakup. I, I chose that date to as a sort of uh, a, a dividing line through the Middle Ages, from the early through to the what become the High Middle Ages. Chose that date because it, it's it's interesting for two reasons. The first is the the Islamic world loses its um, its unity and the Great Caliphate starts to break up, and so there are different spheres of Islamic power across that empire. But it's also interesting because in Western Europe, and our our focus is going to narrow somewhat this week to, to Western Europe before we expand again next week, in Western Europe at this point we see in and around the land we now call France, the land of the Franks, the rise of the Carolingian dynasty. Carolingian means that they're the descendants of Charles, and the Charles in question is Charles Martel. In 732, Charles Martel, uh, a high-ranking politician, although not a king, a mayor of the palace uh, in the Frankish world, defeated an Islamic army at the Battle of Tours. And this was subsequently seen, and is still clung to today by many, particularly on on the far right, as a defining moment at which uh, Europe, Western Europe, did not become uh, Islamic and potentially even Arab-speaking. And the the, uh, the Arab armies were kept below the Pyrenees, if you like. Whether that's true or not, we can or, or an accurate description of uh, of events we can we can perhaps discuss over the next hour. What's undeniably true is that Charles Martel's descendants start to become preeminent in Western Europe, and particularly in the lands we call France, Germany, Northern Italy, uh, from around 750 onwards. And the greatest of them all is. Charlemagne. Charlemagne a king who managed to conquer not only the lands of the Franks but also large parts of what is now Germany who claimed areas of Saxony from pagans who fought the Avars in the east who sent armies across the Pyrenees uh, to fight in northern Spain as we now call it who put together a, a an empire Which looks remarkably, which includes, for you know, in modern terms, France, Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, much of Italy. Um, it looks remarkably like the core of the modern European Union. And Charlemagne, in doing that, sort of set a high watermark, in as many people would see it now, for European. Um, consolidation, integration, unity, uh, which was in in many ways the curse of the Middle Ages and and ages thereafter, because this idea that Europe could be unified uh, and the striving of particularly French and German rulers to set about that unification has has played on the, the Western imagination, the Western European imagination, ever since Charlemagne's day. Now, Charlemagne's other great achievement... Uh, was to have himself crowned as emperor uh, in the year 800 in Rome, and uh, his coronation as emperor was extremely important because as the Middle Ages progressed, this led to uh, the conception of the office of Holy Roman Emperor, um, a secular ruler who would also have a special duty uh, with regards to the Latin church, the Roman church, who would be its ultimate protector, Um, the uh, who would who would have a sort of supremacy particularly as it turned out over the german states um that office which became as i say holy roman the office of the holy roman emperor uh, lasted an enormously long time and at various points in european history was indeed a very very powerful office at other points was was not a very powerful office um that that was one of charlemagne's other legacies so the political setup is that the in this period The Carolingians come to the fore, particularly in in Western Europe. Uh, There is a lot of fallout when the Carolingian Empire breaks up. We have interesting things going on to the north with the rise of the Vikings and Viking raids around France and England and Ireland and uh, of course within Scandinavia, but also down towards Constantinople. And then within the Frankish world, that is the world dominated by the Franks, the descendants of Charlemagne, we start to see the rise separately of archetypes, monks and knights, and then their fusion as crusaders. So there's an awful lot going on in there. I've I've tried to sum up some of the dominant themes of, as Dave said, 500 years in a bare 10 minutes. So there's a massive amount to unpack, um, which is why I think I will ask Dave to come back and uh, help me unpack it.
2: And here I am. Thank you very much. Right. So that's dropped us into the story. First thing, Dan, what, what is the difference between a Merovingian and a Carolingian?
3: Well, the similarity is that they're both slightly difficult to say. Um... <laughs> Uh, now the, the merovingians were known as the long-haired kings so the merovingians had been had uh, risen from let's call it the barbarian state of the franks and had at uh, had in their earlier history uh, been relatively powerful and if we think about um there's the kings clovis and childeric they're they're hard to know a great deal about and we're often as with many groups in the early middle ages reliant on archaeology over solid um written accounts but from things like grave goods uh found of Childeric the first we can see this was a very wealthy very prestigious um ruling dynasty who held power over what look an area that looks a lot like modern france that's basically the territory we're talking about, um, they were known to the long-haired kings literally because the symbol of their regality was their long hair. But as um, as those post-Roman years progressed, the effective power of the Merovingian kings began to wane until they were known colloquially as the do-nothing kings, uh, kings who uh, who held a lot of Prestige and sort of swanked about combing their hair, uh, but didn't really do very much. And power in let's call it France and the regions of France—Austrasia, uh, Neustria, Aquitaine, and so on—that had passed to mayors of the palace, pragmatic political rulers, people like Charles Martel, who exercised most of the the, the real functions of kingship without actually holding uh, kingship itself. The Carolingians, descendants of Charles Martel, Pippin, Charlemagne, and then uh, Charlemagne's um, sons and grandsons and great-grandsons, combined those offices. So they, they took themselves from being mayors of the palace, in Charles Martel's case, to kings who were anointed by churchmen and critically by popes. So Pippin was the Pippin I was the first to have himself anointed and so that this is a sort of priestly ceremony which today if we think about if we can cast our minds back or at least think about uh, images of queen elizabeth ii's coronation the essential part of most coronations of kings and queens in the western world today involve a ceremony of anointing holy chrism is placed on the shoulders and the head and so on Um, that wasn't always the case it was that was a, a, a priestly ceremony under the carolingians the the idea of anointing as well as crowning a king came to be something that was an essential part of kingship and that anointing process sort of started to fuse the idea of there being a total distinction between the priestly caste on the one hand and the ruling cast on the other and you start to see under the Carolingians a real um coming together or a a muddying of where the divide between um the secular and the sacred lies Uh, and and certainly when Charlemagne is is crowned as an emperor in Rome by the Pope uh it it's it really starts to align those two roles. Now that's great for Charlemagne, and it's uh, it's pragmatic politics at the time because Charlemagne has helped the Pope to uh, defend the papal territories, papal states against the Lombards. However, the repercussions of of having such a, a, of muddying the distinction between the secular and the sacred uh, mean that for most of the rest of the later Middle Ages, arguably up to the Reformation, there is a constant running battle between popes and the greatest kings in Europe as to who has um, preeminence and this manifests itself in things uh, like the um, uh, the investiture contest when there are these enormous arguments about who gets to appoint bishops and it runs all the way through to the reformation and the and the arguments um, that you see play out in the English Reformation when Henry II is claiming to be the supreme head of the church in his realm. These, these are, in, in many senses, the uh, arguments inherited from the Carolingians.
2: And uh, and your book is, in some ways, a, a study of, of power and the growth of power and the change of power during this period. Is it fair to say that the growth of the power of the papacy is inextricably linked with the growth of the Carolingians. Is it the two things they come together and and boost the the papacy as well as that monarchy, that dynasty?
3: Yes, to an extent, uh, although it isn't just the Carolingians. There's a growth in the power of um, the power, the depth of power, the extent of power, the prestige uh, of kings across Western Europe, particularly Christian kings um from this period from you know from the 9th century through till uh let's say the 14th century or 13th century there's there's a a a big rise in the power of kings there's simultaneously uh, a growing um urge on the part of popes to throw their weight around and to claim some sort of overarching political as well as religious responsibility in the west The key in terms of the Carolingians is probably falls in Charlemagne's reign because it's at this time that popes in Rome, who remember had just been one of of, of, of four very important bishops—bishop of Alexandria, bishop of Constantinople, bishop of Antioch—had been only one of four very important bishops in the church. And but but during the by the time we get to the first millennium. Popes, seem, popes consider themselves to be set apart from any other churchmen on earth. They do need to look for political protection and, and the big switch that happens in Charlemagne's reign is that finally and definitively, instead of popes in Rome in time of need looking east towards Constantinople, towards the Roman emperors, Byzantine emperors, for protection, for political support, for military help if they're under attack by other other regional powers, they start to look north across the Alps to the kings of Europe. And that's the big switch. So you you have this this interesting relationship in which popes are sometimes looking for protection, for help, for, uh, for moral political support to... Uh, to European kings, but on the other hand, uh, resent the fact that they're reliant and want to uh, emphasise their own supremacy. Now, that there are various moments at which this is particularly important. One of them, which we'll come to, is around 1095, or in the sort of 1090s with Urban II and the start of the Crusades, and another is 1215 with the arrival of Innocent III, probably the most ambitious of all the medieval popes in the sense of the pope who believed most strongly and did most to uh, advance the monarchical power of popes across the Western world
2: right we'll hear we we'll hear more about popes as we as we go on as you say
3: going back to Charlemagne what was the secret of his success the impression you get is that Charlemagne was himself extremely personally charismatic, and that and that, that will sound like a, a glib and easy answer. But we can't. We're often tempted to write off personal charisma and personal talent, and uh, when we're writing about um, historical figures, and there is this deep, uh, constant argument in history between ideas that there, there are great men and that there are big forces. If we think about Charlemagne, I mean, I'll, I'll read you a description of Charlemagne um, at his pomp by the chronicler Einhardt, who, uh, you know, Charlemagne stood six foot three, which was extremely tall for the age. Uh, coincidentally, the same height as me. Um, That's <laughs> What? <laughs> Einhardt said of Charlemagne, The top of his head was round, his eyes large and lively. His nose was a little larger than average. He had fine white hair and a cheerful and attractive face. And he goes on to describe how he's a keen swimmer and he's very physically active. He he wears a linen shirt and linen underwear, a tunic fringed with silk and stockings. He covered his shoulders and chest in winter with a jacket made of otter skin or ermine and a blue cloak, always armed with his sword, which had a gold or silver hilt or belt. So although not a sort of ridiculously over-the-top um, Renaissance style king, like a Francois Premier or Henry VIII, he, he made this this kingly impression upon people and was clearly able to command enormous respect by virtue of the force of his personality. Now, that's not clearly the only reason. He inherited a lot from his father Pippin, and particularly this idea that the the Carolingians were anointed and supported, and in some some way. Uh, sanctified almost by the blessing of the popes and there was real political momentum that came from that. Charlemagne was an extraordinarily capable and tireless uh, military campaigner who understood a very basic calculus of warfare which was that on the fringes of the Christianized realms over which he extended his power um, quite ruthlessly, in many cases, happy to depose his brother, his nephews, relatives and and send them off either to monasteries or have them mutilated and disappeared there 's a ruthlessness, but there 's also a sense that on the fringes of the large territories over which he he uh, he claims control, lay pagan peoples um, who, against whom, as a an explicitly Christian king, he could legitimately make war and win a lot of booty and a lot of you know a lot of slaves a lot of money a lot of women a lot of horses a lot of the basic currency of medieval warfare so and constantly rewarding his followers for fighting these wars on the fringes on the edges rather than inside um, the empire that he put together Uh, he also had a very a canny understanding of soft power and you're right this book powers and thrones is in many ways a meditation on what power is in the middle ages and it doesn't just consist of the military and the political charlemagne understood that he in order to create a sort of lasting imprint of kingship and imperium he needed to have uh, A cultural element, a distinctive cultural element to his rule. And so you see at his great palace complex of Aachen, or you saw at his great palace complex of of Aachen, a real movement um, for literacy, for book copying. Um, He was extremely keen about sending out written uh, commands rather than simply verbal commands to enforce not only political edicts but religious edicts as well from his court. So um, he sponsored monasteries, he understood that there was uh, the monasteries provided not only a sort of spiritual purpose across his empire but a purpose in education and a purpose in representing the power of the Carolingians uh, wherever they ruled. so there was a lot of, of monastic sponsorship as well, so he understood power in the personal sense, the political sense, the religious sense, the military sense this was this was in many ways um, the archetype. Of a great medieval ruler, and many who came afterwards uh, measured themselves against uh, his yardstick.
2: And I guess one thing that he he didn't necessarily have to to confront was the was the threat of the of the Scandinavian, the Viking uh, advance, which you know comes into this story, doesn't it? Um, I I suppose slightly after his his reign, really. You know, we in Britain we think of Vikings as people who who raided Lindisfarne and, and around the British coast and the Irish coast, but Fact is, they they um, they had regular adventures into continental Europe as well uh, through the through the ninth century, tenth century. How how does the incursion of the Viking story into this change the power dynamic across Europe?
3: Well, under Charlemagne and subsequently under his uh, his descendants, you start to see an expansion of the Frankish world, partly in terms of an expansion of the. The territories over which Frankish kings claim to rule whether that's as the, you know in one big block or in the three large blocks um western and eastern Francia and Lotharingian between them that develop uh over the course of the Carolingian period so you start to see an extension of those borders but you also start to see an extension of the cultural religious aspects of Carolingian rule so that that means christianizing taking over Previously pagan, non Christian lands, and uh, colonizing them with Christians, uh, with monasteries, with uh, Christian lords. And they start to push further and further north until they're sort of, bu- create this, wasn't it, the Danish march at the, in the north? They start to butt up against the lands of the Scandinavian, uh, non Christian. Um, seafaring and river-faring people who we collectively call the Vikings and they pique the interest of the Vikings because the Carolingians are generally speaking rich and sponsor a lot of monasteries uh, in which there's a lot of movable wealth and not very many trained killers to defend them so uh, it's inevitable I think that you start that the Viking and Frankish worlds start to intermingle from the ninth well the late eighth and ninth centuries Onwards. Now, of course, it's not just the Frankish lands the Vikings are attacking. We know all about Lindisfarne. We know all about Viking raids into the North Sea, Vikings sailing Constantinople, and so on. But specifically, with regard to the bigger story that we're telling today, and the bigger story that's in the second part of Powers and Thrones, what the Franks and the Vikings create, in a way, as they clash, are the Normans. And so as the, the for, there's this sort of, over several generations, clashes between Franks and Vikings continue, and you have the Vikings sailing all the way down the River Seine until they're in Rouen, they're in Paris. Um, they're really up in the faces of the Franks, and there's uh, a settlement eventually in which um, a Viking ruler called Rollo is given a parcel of land which becomes what we now know as Normandy and the descendants of Rollo are sort of frankified christianized vikings and they're known as the Normans short for northmen in english and they are Uh, a a sort of interesting hybrid who don't just stay in Normandy, who then extend their power south, down as far south as Sicily, and who are major players in the Crusades. And they're very well known through the power in in Sicily and southern Italy to the the Byzantine Empress in Constantinople. Um, They're famed for their... Well, they they conquer England, of course. They're famed for their... um, prowess on the battlefield just as the franks are in terms of their heavy cavalry but the normans are known for their castle building expertise they're known for their ruthlessness uh, exceptional ruthlessness in the business of warfare and they become very very important in the crusades so you have two kind of fusion things going on in the crusades which will we're not going to get to immediately but we will get towards one is that there's an enormously strong norman contingent in the Crusades the fusion of the frankish and the viking and there's also in the idea of the crusader himself and i i think it's himself rather than him or herself himself the fusion of the ideals of the monk and the knight and these all of these things come together in the in the crusade
2: still to come on the history extra podcast
3: you have this extraordinary figure who is then known as the greatest knight and that's still what people call him today the greatest knight because he was the absolute embodiment of martial prowess political talent uh upwardly mobile wealth and land seeking and uh, literary sensitivity to what chivalry really was
1: You successfully
2: ticked off several of my my questions there. One of them was about whether the Norman Conquest has uh, importance beyond just England. I think, from what you're saying, it is it is more significant. We we tend to see it as just you know William the Conqueror goes and takes over England and the, then have uh, consequences beyond in, in Britain generally. Um, but actually, you're saying those Normans were pretty significant in the in the run of things generally.
3: Well, the Norman yeah okay. So the Norman Conquest of England specifically. Um, it's an incredibly important uh, and rightly canonical moment in English history because of the changes that it wrought over the fabric of the English landscape, of the, the, organis- the political and religious organisation of England. You know, we number our kings dating from William the it's, First. It's a traumatic event in many ways, uh, as well as a, a eventually a creative one. It, in, it ensures that for hundreds of years, uh, there is a, a lingering and not, sometimes not very helpful sense that England and Normandy are bound and that in, the English kings ought to be ruling across the Channel as well. So, yeah, look, in English history, we don't need to rehearse how important the Norman conquest is. Uh, the further you step back or the further you sort of pull the lens away from just focusing on England, I think, as usual, the more peripheral English affairs can become. Um it's arguable, I think, it very arguable that the Norman conquest of Sicily and southern Italy is infinitely more important in in broad European terms, uh in, in the sort of the big history of this region than the conquest of England. And I think that the uh the leverage, the pressure that Normans like Robert Guiscard or um and his brother Roger, who becomes the first Norman king of Sicily, the way that their strategic position in the central Mediterranean and their political position in in Italy and looking towards Constantinople is much more important um, than the position of the Norman kings of England, wealthy, powerful, and feared in their zone as they are. But I think that's just the consequence of stepping back further and further and further and looking and, and throwing your historical gaze wider and wider and wider. And The, the, the fact is that for long stretches of history since, you know, since the birth of Christ, uh, what goes down in England um, has uh, disproportionate, you know, we're not very good at at seeing our place in the world. And uh, the facts of geography are that England and the British Isles beyond are marginal in the broader history of this period.
2: Now, going back to the Vikings, the Vikings uh, were initially pagans. They, they, they followed pagan um, beliefs. Um, uh, and then the Normans, as you said, they, they became Christianized. But what point would you say it would be reasonable to talk about Europe, Western Europe, as Christian? Because you talked about Charlemagne um, looking, to, looking to the east of those pagan territories. And of course, you should remember that there are still Islamic territories in, in Iberia at this point. So when when would you start to use
3: that sort of phraseology that's a, that's an extremely good question um you know we, right up until the 11th century there are still uh pagan vikings um you know when the when the viking king sigurd uh, jerusalem pharaoh goes down to uh, constantinople and jerusalem in the aftermath of the first crusade it, he's and he's bringing back christian relics to um to Norway he's this is still a very young uh belief system in Scandinavia and Scandinavia is a very important part of uh of Western Europe so you know we can we're, we're still we're not necessarily all the way there in the 11th century now if you uh, you mentioned the Reconquista what was now Spain and Portugal well you could argue that until 1492 when the last uh, Islamic ruler of southern Spain um, is kicked out of Granada and the Alhambra, uh, that there is still an important Islamic presence on mainland um, Western Europe. I think because when, when we think about the Crusades in particular, and if we think about that that force for Christianisation, um, we often tend to think it's just about Jerusalem and maybe a little bit about Egypt or, and or Constantinople but in fact what, what's what's manifested through crusading outside that region is the military uh, Christianization of, of large portions of, of pagan Europe so we have the Reconquista we have this drive ever further south by christian rulers and the christianization or at least the the, the takeover by christian powers <coughs> of al-Andalus you also have the baltic crusades which are still going you know they're still crusading against pagans in the baltic in the early 15th century i mean henry the as a young man goes out crusading against uh, with the teutonic knights in the because that's at the end of the 14th century, but it goes with the Teutonic Knights, you know. So this process of of Christianization takes a very, very, very long time, uh, and you could easily make the case that it's, it's just about getting there um, in the 15th century.
2: Now, one of just just thinking about Christianity, just a, a little bit more. One of the sort of the signatures of medieval Christianity is monasticism. You've got a chapter in your book all about monks and, and monasticism, uh, nuns and nunneries, and you've got a nice phrase. Um, like branches of a spiritual McDonald's, Cluniac houses could be found almost everywhere west of the Rhine and particularly along the international road routes walked by pilgrims visiting holy sites such as Santiago de Compostela. So uh, I like that line, so I just wanted to say it. I should probably let you say it, but there we are. Uh, when and how do monasteries and nunneries uh, uh, um, come to proliferate and be important in, in Europe?
3: So the rise of monasticism... Um, and its proliferation across Europe is is an enormous story that begins very early on you know and that, so the story of of monasticism or of asceticism in um in the christian tradition is almost as old as christianity itself and if we look to the period we were talking about last week the early middle ages there are a large number of uh, particularly desert hermits or stylites or you know people who who go out and and live the barest most painful life of uh, near starvation um, near death by exposure and contemplation that is possible to lead monasticism in the sense that we understand it which is largely communities of monks and nuns living together, doing manual labour, praying, keeping silence, singing, doing God's work, Opus Dei, uh, begins around the 6th century um, and is codified by St Benedict, who gives his name to um, the Benedictine rule. And if we talk about Benedictine um, monks, Who are for a long period in the middle ages the the dominant group of monks we're talking about monks who follow the rule written down by saint benedict if you believe that saint benedict was actually a person it wasn't pope gregory the great who wrote anyway but that that aside the for me one of the most important moments in the history of western monasticism well there's one with charlemagne's accession in uh, as as ruler of the franks because charlemagne and subsequently, his descent, his son, you know, son Louis the Pious, and uh, other descendants um, are very, very keen on monasticism as a way of uh, of improving the education of the people of their subjects, as a way of um, d- generating um, the you know li- uh, books or manuscripts as a way of um, inserting their power into. The localities in a way that's not purely military, but in the 10th century, so in the early 10th century, um, Cluny Abbey is founded by the Duke of Aquitaine, and I think for me that's that's a foundationally important moment in the history of monasticism in the West because Cluny and the Cluniac system. Uh, comes to have profound importance and and the, and the cluniacs become incredibly powerful in in a soft in, in terms of soft power during the high middle ages what is cluniac monasticism well the story of western monasticism is the story of, of constant waves of reform so what happens at cluny where in the early 10th century uh, a new monastery is founded for the where monks can live and study and pray and 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 crucially uh sing masses for the souls of the dead and their benefactors in particular cluny starts to become a sort of center of monastic reform and cluniac priors and cluniac you know senior cluniac monks go out over the subsequent generations into other, mon- other Benedictine monasteries around the West and start to reform them, which is really a case of reading the Riot Act. Coming in, saying, "Look, you're not you're not sticking to the spirit and all the letter of Saint Benedict's rule, and you need to be doing better." And then, a, then a monastery can be considered, considered to have been reformed, and it's it's brought into the Cluniac fold, so it becomes, in some way, uh, answerable to the mothership at Cluny itself. And this is a process by which the power of one particular monastery starts to spread uh, it, it be, the, the reason i use the term spiritual mcdonald's is because it's a, it's it's basically what we now understand to be a franchise system they take the cluniac brand the cluniac way of doing things and start to export it uh, over wide distances and and the other part of the 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 passage from the book that you quoted says that they were uh, Cluniac monasteries were often arranged along pilgrim roads, and that's absolutely right. So let's say that you and I Dave decided we were going to leave uh, our our bases in uh, in southern England, and we were going to go off to Santiago Compostela to see the uh, the relics of Saint James we would cross the channel and then join established pilgrim roads that hit certain monasteries, holy sites along the way, crossed the passes of the Pyrenees, went along northern, what's now northern Spain, and ended up in northwest Spain, in Galicia, in Santiago de Compostela. Uh, Along the way, pretty much every time we needed to stop, we would probably find a a cluniac reformed benedictine monastery that had some relics we could admire that uh would give us a bed or somewhere to stay for the night that would look after us and that in return we might give a little bit of money to or um or a bit of some other form of sponsorship to and that proved to be a very effective system now the cluniacs also and it started to generate a lot of money and, and the cluniacs um system became extremely wealthy and, and cluny abbey itself the mothership in burgundy started to become incredibly grand until and there were and the the abbey church and the abbey grounds went through several stages of redevelopment culminating in what was unsexily known as cluny three a great abbey church which for a while was the biggest building in the world um bigger slightly bigger than saint peter's in rome it's a very powerful and wealthy system and and with with the rise of the buildings with the rise uh, the spread of cluniac monasticism um the heads head abbots in the cluniac um order started to become extremely politically powerful and befriend um the great popes and kings of the day Um, that meant that in particularly in Spain, where they were good friends with kings of Aragon, kings of Castile, the Cluniacs started to take advantage of the Reconquista. So as the kings of the, the rulers of the kingdoms of Spain uh, and, and what's now Portugal started to advance further and further south at the expense of the Muslim powers in that region, they would often funnel some of the profits of their warfare into the Cluniac system, into the they would would either found cluniac um monasteries or just donate to cluny itself uh with the with the the deal being that then they would have more prayers said for their souls they would have a a faster chance of getting through purgatory getting into heaven after their deaths that's the kings who'd done all the killing and so you you start to see Cluniac monasticism a uh a monastic, a reformed version of the Benedictine monastic order uh, which earns a lot of its profit actually from warfare that arranges itself very cleverly along pilgrim roads and which is in some ways uh, an essential part of the dna of what becomes the crusades because urban II, the pope who preaches the first crusade had 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 his education and his upbringing in the cluniac system and i think understood very well the calculus that well on the one hand uh, the, uh, the church can benefit strongly from mass pilgrimage and on the other the church can benefit strongly from warfare against the infidel and you put these two things together and you come up with the crusades
2: right uh now before we get on to the crusades we need to uh just tackle one big concept which you talk about in your book the concept of the knight and uh, and uh the knight in medieval society uh, there's two words um that i'd like you to just um dwell on for a second and tell us whether they meant anything in the medieval period and whether they mean anything now chivalry and feudalism
3: chivalry and feudalism well we should be able to do that in five minutes or so um what, to answer both of those questions, let's think about what is a knight? What does that mean? Um, what are, If we think about a knight, what are we talking about? Someone wearing armour, on horseback, fighting with a lance. Those, those are the essential ingredients, the elemental ingredients of what makes a knight. But of course we know that there's much more to knighthood than that. Let's think about the Bayer tapestry, because there's something important that happens um, that transforms a commoner garden-mounted warrior then there'd been mounted warriors going back to ancient greek times what transforms a common garden mounted warrior uh into a knight think about the bay of tapestry the men on horseback by and large in the bay of tapestry and you you will be the man to correct me if i'm wrong uh, they're not fighting with couch lances. so there are a couple of technological improvements uh or inventions that help mounted warriors become knights which is to say they're fighting on horseback with a lance and they're, they're by an order of magnitude, more powerful on the battlefield than simply wielding a spear. One uh, is the cantled saddle, a saddle with basically a back to it, and the other is the stirrup. To boil down a very long-running argument to its essentials, there is a question about the knight, which is, does the invention of stirrups you know, the metal things you put your feet in that stop you falling off a horse, and particularly falling off a horse if you slam into someone carrying a lance. Does the invention of stirrups enable the transformation from the Mounted Warrior to the knight? And the answer to that is probably. Uh, And does that, therefore, increase the value of a Mounted Warrior on the battlefield so much that knights become able to command enormous fees well they needed it cost an awful lot to train a knight to keep a knight in kit and horses um does the necessity of the outlay on knights because they're such a potent battlefield weapon leads to lords packaging up their lands and giving it to individual knights in return for military service uh more or less what we might describe if we believe in it as the feudal system so does the stirrup create feudalism that's that's the essential argument uh, and the the sticking points along the way of that argument are number one does the stirrup actually make it possible to fight as a knight and the answer as i said is probably number two is is there such a thing as feudalism does that ever actually exist in any meaningful or pure form and the answer to that is uh well, it depends who you ask, but probably not. um <laughs> These are classic historians' answers I'm giving you here I realize um, nevertheless wh- whether we whatever, wherever we come we, we fall in that argument. What is clear is that from the t- uh, late 9th and certainly the 10th, 11th, into the 12th century, there is a transformation in the in the social standing of the Mounted Warrior. Number one, uh, you start to see Western armies, the, arms of, the armies of the Franks, if French, as they're known in the Islamic world from the time of the Crusades, start to become dominated by knights on horseback who, charging with lances, can create devastating... Uh, can create devastation on the battlefield that certainly is a thing that is actually true and does exist the second thing is you start to see knights um gaining social status to go along with their military status and often as part of that becoming land holders that's a thing that happens whether that amounts to a total transformation of society into this thing we call feudalism is uh, unanswerable at this moment between you and i and um, possibly ever the third thing that happens is that as knights become more militarily important and gain more social prestige they also start to create a thing which we now call chivalry which is sort of a moral ethical partly religious partly literary code which in some ways uh, like brushes over the horrid reality of what knighthood really is which is professional killing you see this all the time um any uh body institutionalized body of professional killers from the household knights of a medieval king through to the sas navy seals you know uh, french foreign legion or whatever any trained killers psychologically as a means of dealing with what they do tend to evolve a quite romanticized um story about themselves it's a it's a it's a it's a way of, of bonding the men typically men sometimes women who do it uh and a way of i think um masking the the bloody horror of the task chivalry is an evolving concept in the middle ages um it's connects obviously to the french word for horse and ho- horseman it's uh it's a code of conduct that governs how, originally it's a code of conduct that governs how knights interact with one another, but it quickly develops a strong literary side through um, through things like the story of El Cid or the Arthurian legends first written down by Cretin de Troyes in the 12th century, um, right through to the, the more sophisticated and or evolved military uh, sort of Arthurian romances of Mallory in the 15th century um the probably the pinnacle or certainly as I describe it in Powers and Thrones the pinnacle of this story comes uh in the twel- late 12th early 13th century with the career of William Marshall William Marshall's a very very interesting character if you're interested if you're fascinated by knighthood because William Marshall is um and not particularly wealthy, I mean, fairly wealthy. He's the son of of a knight. He makes his way in the world by training for knighthood and going out into tournaments. Not the kind of um, tournaments you see in the 16th century or in A Knight's Tale, starring Heath Ledger, but running mock battles over, you know. Dozens, scores of uh, of miles of land around Western Europe, in which knights train for combat, fight in teams, win money by ca- capturing each other and ransom each other, sometimes die. So William Marshall makes his way uh, in the world, makes a fortune and a name for himself through through training to be a knight and fighting in tournaments. He then goes on to be mixed up in the affairs of Henry II, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Henry the Young King, Richard the Lionheart, King John, and eventually is the sort of the Earl and Protector of England who secures the accession of Henry III after John's death in 1216. Now, that's all very interesting. William Marshall seems to live his life heavily influenced by not only the political necessities of the day and his own temperament, but by the literary ideal of knighthood and he, he makes his decisions based on whether he feels like he the decision is the decision of a good knight uh, whose qualities include most predominantly loyalty after william martin and that so that's all quite interesting he's like living out uh, a literary fantasy in many ways as he's fulfilling a political role and then the, the loop goes round again because after his death, Marshall's friends and family commission one of the most famous texts of the later Middle Ages, the old French verse biography of William Marshall, known as The History of William Marshall. And this is a sort of tidying up, glossing uh, transformation of Marshall's story into epic poetry in which all of his his ver- his knightly virtues, which he's drawn from literature to to live out, given their own new literary form so it's like pop will eat itself you have this extraordinary figure who is then known as the greatest knight and that's still what people call him today the greatest knight because he was the absolute embodiment of martial prowess political talent uh, upwardly mobile wealth and land seeking and uh, literary sensitivity to what chivalry really was
2: so yeah, so if you want to secure your legacy, uh, you need to make sure that someone writes a nice biography after, you, after you've
3: got. Yeah, well, now, ideally you. I mean, the thing we talked about Churchill last time. Talk about Churchill again. That's that's what you do if you want to be great. That's write true. the history yourself. There's one big topic we need to address, which is the Crusades,
2: um, and some of these themes we've talked about sort of come together there with knights, the growth of knightly classes, and the papacy. So the the, the first Crusade is called by the Pope in the in the in 1090s. There's loads, loads we could talk about there. You've written loads about it. So just can you give us a sense about how the Crusades reshape the political map of, of, of Europe, given your theme of powers and thrones? Politically, how, does, how, do, they, how do they change?
3: Well, the Crusades spring out of some of what we've talk, talked about already. The, the insight of the cluniac system that there is uh, there's wealth and power for the church um, by getting involved with, um, with the wars of kings there is also um a sort of deeper problem of um sin which is how do people like knights who are trained killers offset or cleanse the blood from their hands you know it's it's an unfortunate reality that if your job is killing other human beings you're probably going if either to hell or certainly to purgatory you're not you're not making your way straight to heaven um there is the matter of the east you know drawing back on what we were talking about uh last time there is a the, there are growing problems in constantinople in which the byzantine emperors have uh, are losing steadily more and more of their territory and influence particularly in asia minor um syria palestine as well being areas traditionally under their control which have, have now pretty well slipped into islamic hands um all of these things come together in the 1090s. Oh, and there's also the schism, which we have we talked about uh, with regards to the legacy of the Carolingians between um, both the, the schism between East and Western church, but there's in, in Western Europe a schism uh, effectively between Holy Roman Emperors or Roman Emperors and, and German Emperors and Popes. And there's a, a need for the papacy to find some way of solving an awful lot of problems at once. And to cut a very long story short, in 1095, that's what Urban II does. He says, okay, we're going to, the, the, the solution for unity within Europe, unity between the two branches of the church, um, the salvation of the holy places, uh, and the, um, the the driving back even further of the, uh, the domain of the infidels, um, the problem of nightly sin the solution to all of this is a great penitential armed pilgrimage from the west to first, Constantin- first constantinople and then ultimately jerusalem uh, constantinople will be defended from the seljuks the sunni um, uh, the sunni power who has taken over most of syria and asia minor and jerusalem will be liberated from whoever we find in charge when we get there, whether it's the Seljuks or the Fatimids of Egypt, the, the Shiite power in Egypt. They've been contesting Jerusalem for some time. And this has an extraordinarily powerful powerful effect when it's preached um, in 1095. A crusading craze, I mean, whipped up by papal, papally sponsored preachers and led by uh, some of the greater lords, although not kings of the day, crusading fervor erupts and the first crusade does what they say they're going to they march or sail mostly march to constantinople go, o- go overland from constantinople through asia minor winning battles and sieges along the way uh, take antioch then march all the way down the coast and take jerusalem and it's in, it's in 1099 and it's it's a miracle it looks like a miracle. Uh, the, in the aftermath of the First Crusade, four crusader states are set up. Norman dominated, some of them. There's Kingdom of Jerusalem, County of Tripoli, County of Edessa, Principality of Antioch. And there is there, there are then these sort of four, and subsequently three, once Edessa is lost, before the Second Crusade, crusader colony states along the Palestinian, what's now the coast of uh, of israel palestine lebanon syria crusading at first is is quite limited to that area but it doesn't take very long for the reconquista wars in spain and portugal to be brought into the general sort of crusading uh, world the mental world of crusading at the time of the second crusade in the mid-12th century uh, wars against baltic against pagans in the baltic um, also start to become considered crusades the great third crusade uh, to attempt to recapture lots of lost lands from Saladin is led by is led by Richard the Lionheart and that's that's probably the most famous one but then after that from uh, 12034 you start to see crusading against increasingly unlikely targets some of those some of the crusades are led against um, Islamic rulers in Um, Egypt. But the Fourth Crusade takes aim at Constantinople, a Christian city, and they burn half of Constantinople to the ground and depose the Byzantine Emperor. And then under Innocent III, right at the end of the period that we're talking about today, the beginning of the 13th century, you start to see crusading extended against the Cathars, just heretics in France. You start to see crusades preached against Christian king. I mean, there's a crusade prepared, although not preached against King John around just before Magna Carta. There are four there are crusades preached against the Hohenstaufen, the Holy Roman Emperors. I mean, it, it goes mad. And so crusading from the beginning of the 13th century stops becoming a particularly targeted thing that's aimed in the direction of Jerusalem and just becomes a byword for wars fought because a pope wants you to. And so, and, and within them, at the beginning, we see, we we start to see how the fusion of the knights and the monk has has, has taken um political shape we start to see how the fusion between the frank uh, the frank and the viking has taken sort of political cultural uh shape in the form of the normans um and we start to see what the consequences ultimately are of the contest for supremacy in western europe between popes and kings which was set up by charlemagne
2: thanks for that Dan so that's taken us through uh most of the terrain we needed to cover um just finally to finish off can you can you just tell me why you chose twelve fifteen as your end point please
3: uh is a good date because it's it's um it's it's sort of towards the end of innocent the Third's uh, tenure it it's a, a a sea change really in um or is it a sea change or a high water mark? There's some um, uh, there's some watery analogy I'm reaching for, but it's it's the end. It's it's the high point of church power, a high point of crusading, um, and it marks a sort of uh, a shift from the, the time when monasticism and the sort of early phase of knighthood had these have been the sort of elemental powers. Uh, cultural military powers in Europe and it marks the, the kind of d- decline really thereafter of crusading as, as the sort of central unifying force in Western Europe and the concerns uh, from this point on will be we're going to throw our gaze open a bit more next time around as we start to see the arrival of the Mongols into the the Western consciousness, we start to see... Uh, we, we're going to take a big dive into the 13th and 14th centuries. We're going to start to see other powers uh, on their way back up. So the power of um, the merchant, the power of the builder, the power of the medieval scholar. We're going to investigate power in, in all these different ways next time. So that was...
2: Dan Jones, his book, Powers and Thrones, A New History of the Middle Ages, is published now by Head of Zeus. And as I mentioned in the introduction, if you'd like to watch the full video with the extended audience Q&A of this session, you can do that at our website at historyextra.com forward slash video. But you do need to be a subscriber to the site to access that content. The third episode in this masterclass looks at the period of rebirth from AD 1215 to 1347. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. To find more of our history content and podcast, go to historyextra.com.